a trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies, they're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, here we go. It's December 31st. I know it's a day where a lot of people have been like, finally. (laughs) I wish I could say that I was optimistic that uh, once we turn that calendar page tonight at midnight, everything's going to be all better. But I I don't believe that uh, all the stuff that's in motion right now started because uh, the calendar page turned to 2020 365 days ago. I think uh, I think we've got some pretty interesting times ahead of us, and uh, as much as I look at what's at some of what's coming with uh, with a little bit of a sense of oh, this does not look like it's going to be easy. I also have a sense of optimism, and that sense of optimism is that, uh, and this is just for what it's worth. Here's here's my take: the creator of this universe is still in charge, and as long as I can remember that. It helps me to bring some perspective to all the other chaos. There's a lot of stuff we're going to be talking about today that neither you nor I have any kind of direct influence over. But the one thing we do have absolute control over is how we choose to react. And so I'm going to do my very best, uh, as, as I do each day when I crack open this microphone, to persuade you that it's in our best interest to react in ways that that refine our character, that refine us as human beings, and more importantly, that to serve the purpose of encouraging, building, you know, being a being a positive example to the people around us. Yes, I fall short of this often, but it's it's not about oh yeah, I've nailed it once, therefore I'm set for life. It's a daily, uh, you know, it's a daily thing. We have to keep working on it. And I'll be a work in progress till the moment I draw my last breath. So, take that for what it's worth. By the way, I want to mention the sponsors of our show. They include Alta Bank, as well as Landmark Risk Management and Insurance. I will, uh, I, I've generously provided links to both of these wonderful businesses and sponsors at the end of today's show notes. So if you need to get a hold of Alta Bank for a home mortgage or a refinance on your existing mortgage, you can talk to my friend John Staples simply by clicking on the link. It will take you directly to him. Likewise, if you need commercial insurance, a pretty significant need, I might add, talk to my friend Steve Burgess at Landmark Risk Management and Insurance. I've got the contact link right there and can put you in touch with both of them. When you talk to them, please let them know their message reached your ears because you were listening to this program. Listen, and by, by the way, while you're there on the show notes, if you think of it, consider subscribing to the podcast, and if you find value in what you're hearing here, consider supporting this program by becoming a patron. All right, let's dive in. I try to think about who are the people that I most go out of my way to avoid. Now, it's not that I'm antisocial, but, um, okay, I'm going to risk stepping on a few toes here. Some of the people who make themselves, uh, shall shall I say, less than welcome, uh, multi-level marketing recruiters. I know, I see you nodding your head. Yeah, that's, uh, if if you see the the whiteboard come out and they start explaining, here's how it works. Like me, you probably are looking at your watch going, crap, I've got other places to go, better things to be doing right now. Uh, 
severely uh, severely dedicated vegans. I know I'm I'm kind of picking on them, but I mean the ones that uh, if you're eating something that is not plant based, will actually send you on a guilt trip without your luggage. I'm sure they mean well, but I I could do without the guilt trip. Likewise, CrossFitters, I know you are proud and you're looking great, by the way. But uh, sometimes you may see me, uh, you know, get selectively blind just because uh, I, don't, I don't know if I can handle another discussion about CrossFit. Now, look, I'm sure I'm the same way. There are things that people see me coming and go, oh, crap, here comes Hyde. Uh, duck, get around the corner quick. But there's nobody that I would go out of my way more to avoid than the rabidly woke among us. And the reason why is, is just simply this. I don't want to be controlled. And especially, I don't want to be controlled through fear or weaponized guilt. And that's what the social justice woke types seem to excel at doing. Looking for an excuse. By the way, I do, I do take it as a little bit of a compliment. The last couple of days, I've actually had a couple of them drop by and, and leave some pretty nasty comments on my Facebook page, the, uh, the Brian Hyde Show Facebook page. Now, I could choose to be offended because uh, I think at least in the first one's case, he was using a, a profanity. In the next one, they just called me a Nazi. But it was like, hey, all right, well, at least we're being noticed. So a little opposition can be a good thing. But I really don't want to be controlled by people who think they know what's best and who, who think that somehow they have been you know, endowed by the universe with authority to tell you and me what we are allowed to think, what we're allowed to say, what we're allowed to believe, and to punish us if for some reason we're not living up to their arbitrarily imposed standards. It's offensive. I don't do this to other people. I don't think you do that to other people. You certainly wouldn't be listening to this show if you did. So I'm not about to stand for it being done to me. Now here's the good news. If you're looking to inoculate yourself against weaponized guilt... You don't have to take the COVID-19 vaccine. What you need to do is bolster your immunity to wokeness. That doesn't mean you become some cave-dwelling troglodyte who, you know, if you're, if you're a guy, beats women over the head and drags them off to your cave. <laughs> My girlfriend. No, it's, it's more a matter of you simply understand how to stand up and think for yourself, and you have a reservoir to draw from when you're discussing your principles and your point of view that doesn't involve the need to control other people. Annie Holmquist, who is the editor for intellectualtakeout.org, has put together a marvelous reading list. The, the title of her article is A Reading List to Drive the Woke Crowd Crazy. Now, I'm not suggesting that that's reason enough to, lead the, to read this because it's going to make somebody get frustrated to see that you're reading Forbidden Knowledge. But I promise you, I've read enough of, of Annie's writings. If she's recommending something that could be worthwhile for helping to shape your view of the world as well as helping to inspire the best in your own character, it's worth paying attention to what she's recommending. She's very well-read. She's very insightful. And, and this is a list worth considering. She says, at the beginning of the year, a couple of my coworkers challenged me to join the yearly book challenge on Goodreads. And she says, well, I'm still wrapping up a few of my selections. I am on track to finish my goal, and it's rewarding to see the finish line in sight. Having done this challenge, she says, I took notice when I saw another writer, Karina Pereira, commenting on her Goodreads challenge over at Book Riot. 
For some reason, she says, I have a hunch that her reading list didn't take the same course as her as, as Annie's, especially in the woke category. This is what Karina had to say. On my Goodreads of 2020, I see books about racism, both fiction and nonfiction, books on ableism, books written by trans people and about trans people, the whole LGBTQIAP plus community, in fact, as well as books by native writers, a first for me. I went out of my way to actively follow BIPOC accounts. I don't know what B-I-P-O-C stands for, but that's what she says. Carefully choosing which themes I wanted to learn more about. Even starting a book club with a friend to work on becoming a better ally and better citizen. End quote. In other words, Pereira is marching lockstep with the diversity crowd and can therefore wear her participation ribbon proudly. Only there seems to be something a bit dissatisfying about doing what everyone else is doing. For Pereira mentions that her book selections were already on the radars of most of the people with whom she wanted to share them. Annie Holmquist says to save Pereira and others like her from repeating this experience in the new year, I've culled a few titles from my own reading lists. Now, they may be a bit shocking to Pereira's sensibilities, but given that they're different from the -the run-of-the-mill selections she admits to reading... Perhaps she would be open to some true diversity. Fulfilling the race category, Coming Apart by Charles Murray, examines the true state of white America. Murray finds that contrary to popular opinion, white Americans are suffering, particularly those who are not among the handful in the elite class. In fact, the decline of religion, family, community, and vocation have spread beyond whites to negatively affect every American, regardless of race, color, or creed. Meanwhile, she says in the sexual orientation category, I offer three different titles. The first is The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert by Rosaria Butterfield. She says that's her first choice. Butterfield, a former English and women's studies professor from Syracuse University, details her journey out of lesbianism. Now a straight, married mother of several adopted children, Butterfield treats the LGBTQ lifestyles and gender identification issues with truth, compassion, and understanding, making this a powerful book regardless of where one stands on issues of sexual orientation. i got to pause here because we got to break away. We'll come back. We'll finish out her reading list. Notice she's not just saying, you know, these are books that, uh, you know, crush the woke. It's not about dominating them. It's just about reclaiming your, your own mental sovereignty rather than marching in lockstep. That's what I love about this article. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I'm sharing with you an article by Annie Holmquist. She is the editor of intellectualtakeout.org. It's titled, A Reading List to Drive the Woke Crowd Crazy. And she was offering some different books that she has encountered over the year. And these are books which, yeah, the woke might have a problem with. That's not exactly the reason why you should read them. It's because they actually offer diversity of thought as opposed to the uniformity that uh, supposedly the diverse among us um, think represents, you know, the only true way to think. Now, she talked about three different titles in the sexual orientation category. The second one was in relation to gender issues, a book called Love and Respect by Dr. Emerson Egrich. 
Dr. Emerson Egrich offers an intriguing take on the difference between the sexes. And Annie says as science increasingly demonstrates men and women are different. And there's nothing wrong with acknowledging that fact. Navigating such differences, however, is another matter. And finding out how to do so can make a world of difference in a marriage. Because many more, because many sexual mores rather have been thrown out the window, she also recommends Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre. A refreshing reminder that commitment to sound moral principles, particularly in matters of marriage and sex, pays off in the end. Postmodern society would likely call Bronte's title character a prude, but the positive effects of Jane's moral uprightness and patience are hard to argue with. By the way, if you haven't read this book, or if it's been a while since you've read it, it really is a marvelous study in character, even if it is fiction. There are some time-tested lessons that hold up very well over the ages. Next, Annie recommends Lords of the Earth by Don Richardson as her choice for learning more about Native cultures. Richardson's opening, opening chapters portray the harrowing true story of cannibals in the region formerly known as Irian Jaya, or Western New Guinea. Contrary to the idea of the noble savage, Richardson's story exposes the atrocities of pagan cultures and shows the relief that Christianity can bring to oppressed peoples. Now, although her friend failed to offer any titles on capitalism or Marxism, she says the latter is so popular today that she says I'd be remiss if I didn't recommend Marx and Satan by Richard Wormbrand. In a few short pages, Wormbrand details the darker side of the ideology sweeping our nation, leading the thinking individual to carefully consider the underlying roots of Marxism before giving it a warm embrace. She says diversity is a trend that will likely continue to receive praise and promotion in the coming year. Yet, as Pereira's post implies, attempts at diversity are prone to ending in conformity. True diversity, Annie reminds us, lies in working to understand arguments and thoughts often sidelined in today's culture, an endeavor which these selections are sure to help readers achieve. Now, you may think, why would I want to read these anyway? I can just tell you, the chances of you encountering these subjects make it worth your time to be, you know, at least somewhat informed on, you know, a more well-rounded view rather than simply waiting for someone to give you, here are your talking points, stick to them, stick to the script, and don't vary in, in any bit. Something we're thinking about. I'll have a link to her article in the show notes, which you can check out at thebrianhydeshow.com. So, have you noticed all the drama over how big your stimulus check should be? I think a lot of people are talking about it. And I'll, I'll admit, when I got notices from a couple of people yesterday, hey, it looks like the checks are going out. And I did. I popped over and checked my bank account just in case. <laughs> just in case there was a little surprise waiting for me. It's not there yet. And there's a part of me that's kind of relieved because there's a part of me that believes this is a marvelous distraction from the bigger issue. Namely, should government even be spending this money in the first place? Seeing as government has no money of its own to spend and creates no value and only can take from those who do produce. And in this case, it's using modern monetary theory to just simply borrow and produce money that has no, no intrinsic value. And it's borrowed with interest and the promise that, yeah, 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 future generations are going to repay it. I think my grandkids are already on the hook, as are all of us. And probably my grandchildren's children are on the hook for money that is being spent now. 
That's kind of scary. And I saw this marvelous article by Kent McManigal that kind of points out that this is, this is not the panacea that we are being told it is. It's more a matter of uh, you know, negotiating a price. And in this case, the price is how much are you willing to surrender of your personal sovereignty? Ken McManigal says, politicians arguing over whether to send taxpayers $600 or $2,000, stupid, dishonest, or both, he asks, political. So the correct answer is both. He says, it's too late to take a stand on the lower amount for principle. In fact, he says, I'm reminded of a rude joke. A rich man asks a beautiful woman if she'd have sex with him for a million dollars. She blushes and says she would. So he says, what would you have sex with me for $10? And she says, what kind of woman do you think I am? To which he replies, we've already settled the question of what kind of woman you are. Now we're just negotiating a price. Ken McManigal says, at this point, refusing to send the larger amount is like refusing to drill another hole in the Titanic's hull. The fatal damage has been done. It's going down regardless. And those who aren't already on a lifeboat are doomed. He points out that the difference $2,000 would make to the integrity of the sinking ship compared to $600 is minuscule, even when multiplied by millions in the current situation. Compared to the multi-trillion dollar hole the feds have dug for themselves, it's almost nothing. In fact, he suggests, and I've seen other people say this too, well, he might as well send each taxpayer a few million dollars. At least that would buy the politicians some political loyalty for a few more weeks. Do you see his point? One choice is not more responsible than the other. They're both equally irresponsible and unethical. Acting as though this is some principled argument is just dishonest beyond words. It's politics for the sake of politics, no matter which side of the argument they take. Just do it or don't and drop the subject. Now, he also notes he won't be getting any of the magic money this time either, just like he didn't last time, unless someone chooses to make a donation from their share, which he says I'm not counting on. But even if I were, he says I understand the implications of making money out of thin air. Most people can't see beyond the temporary boost to their bank account to notice the long-term effects that can't be avoided forever. Maybe that's the more comforting path. And I have to admit, as I read this, this, uh, this kind of hit me. It, it struck me as, you know, okay, Brian, clearly you're against, you know, the, the federal government paying this out. Does that mean you're going to refuse it? Will they go to slip that uh, check into your bank account? Which they're going to do electronically. It's not like, yeah, you got to go show up and stand in line to get your stimulus payment. Oh, no. It'll be direct deposited right into my bank account. Very convenient. And the truth of the matter is, yeah, I'll probably let them go ahead and put it in there. Will I be grateful for it? Probably not as grateful as I should be. <laughs> and, and it's not like, well, I'm going to just send that right back. I don't want that at all. Because what I'm probably going to end up doing with it is simply paying my taxes with it. You realize the stimulus money that was sent to us earlier this year? Yeah, we're all going to be taxed on that. So hopefully whatever they send will be enough to cover that tax liability as, uh, as we move forward. It's stupid, but, uh, you know, I don't look at it as anything. It's not going to change my situation that much. And that's not because I'm so independently wealthy that I really don't have to worry about this kind of stuff. 
You know, I, I sweat uh, I sweat each month just like many of you do. I'm constantly hustling and trying to, to keep streams of income going. And, and, and uh, trust me when I tell you, I do what it takes to keep my family afloat. And thankfully, with the help of my wife, you know, we are able to make ends meet. But this is not going to make a big difference for us. It's not like we're going to run out and buy things that we've never had before. I mean, if, if anything, I'd suggest if you get one of those stimulus payments, some food storage would be a really wise thing to do. Maybe some medical supplies, things that you could use in a time where you're trying to be self-reliant. Otherwise, I'm just going to use mine to pay taxes. Whoop-de-doo! This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I am so glad you are part of our audience. And by the way, our audience is growing. Right now, this show is available on more than two dozen different platforms. And you might think, oh, yes, uh, you know, uh, two dozen tiny, never heard of platforms. No, we're, we're actually on the big ones. We are on Spotify. We're on Apple Podcasts. We are on Google Play and, uh, and a bunch of others. And it makes me very happy to see those. You know, I, I, th- I never thought I would say this about podcasting <clears throat> just because I'll always be a radio guy at heart. But I'm very happy because you can really measure how many people are downloading, how many people are listening. And it's very reassuring to see those numbers slowly but surely going up. And, and, and I've told you before, it's not about to, I'm going to have the biggest audience ever. The message that I'm sharing, I don't think, is something that everybody is going to, to resonate with. But it makes me happy to see that there are people who still resonate with the idea that, you know, we are not sheep. We all have influence, and we can all use that influence in ways that, that we sometimes overlook. And most importantly, you know, there, there is purpose to what is happening around us. We all, I believe, have some kind of a personal mission to fulfill. And it's different. Not, it's not going to look the same. And, and, and the kicker here is, I couldn't begin to tell you what your personal mission is. I'm confident that you have one. And the, the only thing I can tell you to, to either, you know, inspire you or perhaps dissuade you from pursuing your own is that once I realized that I had such a thing, that there was a unique personal purpose, I call it, you know, I, I do call it a mission because I feel like it's, it's almost a calling. Like God said, hey, here are the talents that I'm going to bless you with or I'm going to allow you to develop or help you develop over your life, but I expect you to put them to good use and this is the job that I'm going to give you. My life has never been the same. In some ways, it's been a little bit harder <laughs> because I've, I've had to choose to pass on some opportunities that would have been easier and perhaps even more lucrative to pursue the ones that my heart tells me are more suited to what I'm supposed to be doing to, to make the highest possible use of my time and my energy and my talents. But I will say this, I'm happy. So, you know, take from that what you will. There's a happiness and there's a peace that comes into your life when you start to live that way. When you start to be more concerned about impact 
than you are about status, title, income, you know, or at least the, the amount of income. Look, we've all been there, right? We've, we've all defined ourselves, you know, at some point by, well, you know, how will people know how successful I am? And it was a little bit of a bittersweet truth, but it was also extremely liberating to come to the realization that I'm never going to be famous. But that's okay. Because I would be content to be known for the right reasons. And if that's uh, known by a small number of people who understand, no, he's doing what he feels he was, was born to do, then so be it. I can live with that. This is all about pursuing happiness, which brings us to my next article here. This is from uh, Judge Andrew Napolitano, The Freedom to Pursue Happiness. I know you've heard it, you've probably been accused of this, but when you stand up for yourself, and this is particularly true in times of COVID, you are accused of selfishness, if not wanton disregard for the lives of people around you. Selfishness, how dare you? How can you do this? I saw one guy's uh, rant on Twitter recently. Oh, my goodness. He was just like, I just, this makes me so angry when people just don't care enough to follow the rules or to do what I, what they're being told to do. I wish I could just beat them to death. No, he really said that. And then he walked it back a little bit. Well, you know, I'm not talking about literally beat them to death, but, but that's how frustrated I am that these people have so little disregard for others and only care about themselves. And we're supposed to believe that this guy is in no way unhinged. He is representative of what a good person should be like. No. See, at the root of why most people assert their freedom and assert their autonomy is a desire to pursue happiness on their own terms. And as long as their behavior is peaceful, you know what? They have my blessing. I say go for it. Government was actually instituted. If you remember back to a little thing called, uh, you know, Independence Day, we celebrate America declaring its independence. And among the justifications that it gave was that we have this right to pursue life, liberty, and happiness. Here's how Judge Napolitano puts it. He says, The governors of all 50 states and the mayors of many large cities have assumed unto themselves the powers to restrict private personal choices, and lawful public behavior in an effort to curb the spread of COVID-19. They've done so not by enforcing previously existing legislation, but by crafting their own executive orders, styling those orders as if they were laws, using state and local police to enforce those so-called laws, and, presumably when life returns to normal and the courts reopen, prosecuting the alleged offenders in court. I think of my friend Sarah Walton Brady up in in Idaho who is actually facing trial after being arrested for standing on a playground with her children. Yes, she was charged with trespassing, but it all started because an enforcer showed up to, to inform them no one can play on this playground because it was closed due to COVID restrictions. There's a lot more to that story. We need to have her back on the show, but she's she's literally facing criminal charges kind of shakes my faith in the justice of the whole system but hey on to the on to the commentary from judge napolitano he says it's hard to believe that any judge in america would permit a criminal trial of any person for violating a standard of behavior that has not been enacted into law by a legislature 
We know this because under our system of representative government, separated powers and guaranteed liberties, only the legislative branch can craft laws and assign punishments for noncompliance. This is Constitutional Law 101. Supreme Court Justice Neil Gorish has written that the executive branch cannot enforce a law that it has written. If it does, we will have approached tyranny. And then he asks the question, have we approached tyranny already? During the past eight weeks, he says governors and mayors have closed most businesses, public venues and houses of worship, prohibited public assembly and restricted travel, all of which they have unilaterally decreed to be non-essential. In his terrifying novel, 1984, which posits a future of total control of all persons by the government and total control of the government by one political party, George Orwell argued that he who controls the meaning of words controls the laws as well. That Orwellian truism has been manifested like never before here in America, where executive branch holders, branch office holders rather, have used state and local police to restrain people from engaging in private and public behavior, which they concede was lawful two months ago, because today it is deemed it's not deemed essential. And Judge Napolitano says, frankly, I'm surprised at the ferocity of police enforcement and the lameness of police compliance. Police have taken the same oaths to uphold the same Bill of Rights. It's not the Bill of Safety. It's the Bill of Rights, as have all other office holders. holders rather. The police also know that it's unlawful for them to obey an unlawful order, particularly when they use force. The lockdown orders are all unlawful because none of them, none, has been enacted by a legislature, and all of them all interfere with fundamental liberties, each of which is guaranteed, guaranteed by the Constitution. Now, he says, please don't misunderstand me. I recognize the scientific value of personal efforts to control contagion. But under the Constitution, these social distancing, wear your mask, shut your business, stay-at-home edicts constitute mere recommendations that should induce rational, voluntary compliance because the government in America is without lawful power to compel compliance. He says the governors complain about resistance. Well, they need to know that Americans will resist efforts to interfere in behavior that remains as moral, natural, lawful, and constitutional as it was 60 days ago. Last week, President Donald Trump, sounding fed up with gubernatorial lockdown orders, declared that religious worship is essential meaning, in his opinion, all houses of worship should be opened, and he offered that he was prepared to override any governors who disagreed with him. When he realized that he lacked any authority to override even unlawful gubernatorial decrees, he dispatched the Department of Justice to begin filing challenges to governors in federal courts and to argue that constitutional freedoms are being impaired by states. Now, Judge Napolitano says, I applaud this, but it's too little too late. Where was the DOJ when Catholic priests were threatened with arrest for saying mass or distributing palms and when Jewish rabbis were put in COVID-19 infested jails for holding funerals? He says at these religious events, folks freely chose to exercise their freedom to worship and to take their chances. There's more to this article. We're going to come back to it in just a few moments. And again, you can find a link to this article in the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. We'll be right back. This is The Brian Hyde Show. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I'm sharing with you an excellent commentary from Judge Andrew Napolitano on how the freedom to pursue happiness, that's why people are resisting these uh, unlawful COVID-19 lockdowns. It's not a death wish. It's not disregard for the safety and health of others. It's not a lack of love for their fellow man. It's because they understand proper government is there to secure our ability to pursue happiness. And I love how he points out here, even President Trump agreed, hey, shutting down houses of worship, this is, uh, this is beyond the proper scope of state governments. And at first he, he said, you know, well, I'm going to override any governors who disagree with me. But then realized, nope, even the president doesn't have authority to override unlawful gubernatorial decrees. So he sent the Department of Justice to start filing challenges in federal courts against these governors. Now, Napolitano says these DOJ interventions provoked the question, who should decide what goods, services, or venues are essential? Should it be the states or the federal government? But he says the answer, the question rather, is Orwellian as the answer is neither of them. The government in America, whether it's state or federal, has no power and no right to determine what goods, services, and venues are essential. That's because these determinations have been for individuals to make since 1776. And those individual choices have been constitutionally protected from the feds since the Bill of Rights was ratified in 1791 and from the states since the 14th Amendment was ratified in 1868. This means what's essential to the laborer or student or housewife may not be essential to the former Goldman Sachs partner who was elected governor of New Jersey and who decreed last week, it shall be the duty of every person or entity in this state to cooperate fully with his orders, or essential to the ideologue who's the mayor of the Big Apple and who, for all his professed liberality, threatened to close permanently, permanently, businesses and houses of worship that flaunt his guidelines. Napolitano says a duty is undertaken voluntarily or by nature, not by executive command, Governor Murphy, (laughs) and the government cannot take property away from its owners except for a legitimate public use and only for just compensation, Mayor de Blasio. Governors and mayors can make all the dictatorial pronouncements and threats they wish, but they cannot use public assets to enforce them. And when they seek to use force, those from whom they seek it should decline the offer. He says, in America, we decide for ourselves what produces happiness, and we've never delegated to the government ever the power to make personal choices for us. And some of us are willing to take chances and even do non-essential things. The essence of the freedoms for which we fought since 1776 is the liberty to be ourselves. Beautifully stated. Judge Napolitano, I tip my hat to you. Again, the link to this will be in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. I hope you'll find some time. If, if, if nothing else, even visit some of the past show notes. You're going to find a lot of great essays and a lot of great articles that uh, I spend literally most of my waking hours scouring the Internet and, and, you know, and scouring my own email, for that matter, to find. There's always more stuff to share than I have time to share, and so I, I encourage you, take a look and see. You don't have to agree with any of it. I only offer it as just the the possibility this may provide you with a broader perspective on things that are going on. 
And if I'm sharing it, it's because at some level it made me think. And I assume that you and I are probably not so different. Maybe it'll, it'll help you think as well. All right. Here's a, here's a great one from our uh, No Good Deed Goes Unpunished file. I don't know if there are still people who listen to this program who believe, you know, the state's primarily a benevolent presence in our lives, and really, I think it means well, and for the most part, really does, you know, good things for all of us. Okay, I'd like you to try this story on for size. Do you remember back when the, uh, when the pandemic first was really taking off? One of the things that went, I think this was, was in as, as steep a demand as toilet paper, and we all remember the great toilet paper shortage earlier this year. It was hand sanitizer. Very, very tough to find. In the world. There wasn't enough hand sanitizer. Who stepped up to increase the production and to, to make it possible for there to be sufficient hand sanitizer to meet the demand? Well, that would be the distilleries across the nation. I thought that was a pretty stand-up move on their part. Well, do you realize that uh, government also appreciates that those distilleries stepped up to help produce hand sanitizer? And for their heroic efforts in doing so, the FDA is now stepping forward and charging each of these distilleries a $14,060 FDA fee. Oh, I'll just let that sink in for a moment. Yeah. Instead of saying, hey, maybe we should cut you some slack on your taxes or something in in appreciation for what you did to help uh, create and meet the need of of this uh, greater demand for hand sanitizer, we need you to pay us $14,000. This is an article from Jacob Greer at Reason.com, who says, For many American craft distillers, 2020 was already one of their worst years ever. The COVID-19-related closure of tasting rooms and cocktail bars, loss of tourism, and inability to offer in-store sampling slashed their sales revenue and cut them off from their customers. And then he says, just this week, just as it seemed they'd made it through the worst of a terrible year, the Food and Drug Administration had one more surprise in store. The agency delivered notice to distilleries that had produced hand sanitizer in the early days of the pandemic that they now owe an unexpected fee to the government of more than $14,000. How do you say thank you? (laughs) Here's a bill. Pay it. Aaron Berg, who's president and distiller at Calwise Spirits in Paso Robles, California, said, I was in literal disbelief when I read it yesterday. I had to confirm with my attorney this morning that it's true. The surprise fee caught distillers completely off guard, throwing the already suffering industry into confusion. When the onset of the pandemic led to a massive increase in demand for hand sanitizer this spring, many distilleries stepped up to alleviate the sudden shortage. The main ingredient in sanitizer is ethanol which they are in the business of making, albeit typically in more fun and tasty formats. More than 800 distilleries pivoted from spirits to sanitizer, offering it for sale or, in many cases, donating it to their communities free of charge. And their prompt action helped ensure supplies of sanitizer when it was otherwise unobtainable. Even then, if you remember, the FDA needlessly complicated things imposing additional requirements on top of guidelines published by the World Health Organization for emergency production. The FDA's mandate that all alcohol used in sanitizer must first be denatured, rendering it undrinkable, created a bottleneck that raised costs for distillers and slowed production. Producing sanitizer is viewed as a point of pride in the distilling business, a way that they were able to help their communities in a fearful time of crisis. 
Now, however, that good deed is being punished with unanticipated fees by the FDA. Becky Harris, president of the American Craft Spirits Association, says, I compare it to surprise medical billing. At issue is a provision of the CARES Act that reformed regulation of non-prescription drugs. Under the revised law, distilleries that produced sanitizer have been classified as over-the-counter drug monograph facilities. And the CARES Act also enacted user fees on these facilities to fund the FDA's regulatory activities. For small distillers, that means ending the year with a surprise bill for $14,060 due on February 11th. Now, Harris says people are incredibly anxious. We've been dealing with tons of phone calls, talking to individual members and state guilds to tell them what we know and what we don't know. Harris and the ACSA spent the day trying to learn more about uh, the details of the law and the FDA's intentions, but the combination of the holidays and the pandemic make this a difficult time to reach anyone. Harris says we recognize that this bill, the CARES Act, wasn't written specifically for the issue of sanitizer. But the problem is that we have that we have right now is the fee assessment is going out to a whole lot of small businesses who are struggling in the pandemic. So I'm just going to let that uh, stay with you and and again ask you. Still believe that hey, the government's just there to help, man. They're just trying to make it safe. They're just trying to, to, to do for us what we can't do ourselves. How is this anything but a slap in the face to go through all this, to actually step up and, and make this happen on the part of the distillers and then get hit with a bill for it? I don't know about you, but it, it just it seems, it seems a bit much. The Grinch, I suspect, would be nodding his head in approval, going, yes, <laughs> exactly. This is how I would have handled it. $14,000 fee. On top of a really tough year, hey, congratulations, you made it through 2020. It's almost enough to make you wonder, okay, so what do you have in store for us uh, for the next year? For that matter, do I even want to know? Our show is brought to you by Alta Bank and also by Landmark risk management, and insurance. I've got links to these wonderful sponsors at the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Check them out. These are the show notes for December 31st, the last day of 2020. And hopefully the gateway to a better and brighter year. Thank you for being part of our audience. This is The Brian Hyde Show.